This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Blood Red podcast. I'm James Martin and I recently had the pleasure of being joined by Lee Richardson, psychologist at Liverpool Football Club. We discussed everything from the intense run-in to the do's and don'ts of penalty shootouts, with another final against Chelsea on the horizon. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Just to start us off, could you explain just a little bit about your role within Liverpool? Um, Yeah, so I suppose as a sports psychologist, um, there's a kind of probably a dual focus um primarily performance enhancement um mainly individual players uh but also uh, so individual players in and around the first team uh do quite quite a bit of work with some of the younger under 23 players with Barry Lutus um and alongside that then staff uh often there's often things that staff want to discuss around uh, their own performance or their own situations. Um, and then I suppose leading on from that, you would, uh, the other end of the continuum, if you like, which is more on mental health rather than mental performance, which is a focus obviously for all, everyone really at the AXA uh, training ground. So yeah, kind of a dual purpose to be there and um, focusing mainly on on where we can improve and, and enhance performance whenever that's requested or required, and at the same time making sure that people have got somewhere and someone that's supposed to confide in, if necessary, for anything that's um, you know causing them any distress. Yeah, it's great to see that kind of focus on mental health from the club. But in terms of the performance as well, it's a fascinating time to be talking to you because, of course, every game at the moment is just so intense, so high pressure. Just how much of a psychological test is that for the squad and what sort of things do you do to help the players handle that? I think there's a number of things that probably uh, are all all going on at the same time. I think it's fair to say that there's a momentum that builds over a number of years, perhaps, that's providing a, a significant impetus in the team's performances that uh, began probably, you know, you probably argue with uh, the introduction of Jurgen Klopp to Liverpool some years ago now and building on the back of, of you know, um, I suppose years of, of trying to establish a way of going about things that they're going about in, the, in now at the moment. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons why uh, I think the squad is well, uh, very adept at dealing with the, some of the pressures. I think it has to be f- fair to say, you know, that whilst Jurgen and his st- and his main coaching staff have certainly helped to develop that, it it comes back to, I suppose, the football club and the recruitment of the players that they've uh, brought to the club. You know, it's, I think looking at the game last night, uh, what was noticeable to me at least was just how many players on the Liverpool side on our team that were, you know, really at the top of the game, you know, probably eight on eight of the, of the starting 11 were probably late twenties. Most of them have been here for a number of years now. So there's a, there's a, there's a 
team cohesion that's been built over a number of years, credit to the players and to the Jurgen and to the coaching staff mainly. Uh, you know, my role, to be honest, around the team is is limited to, you know, individuals and people who require uh, or want to just uh, talk about issues that are relevant to them. Um, it's that the team would function, you know, uh, as it is, I think, without um, too much interference from other people. So I don't think it's a massive, uh, massive, massive thing that I have to to do really, other than to be there for the individuals when, when and if they need it. And you know, sometimes that involves players who are playing, sometimes it's players who are on the fringes. But it's, um, yeah, it's for me to be, I suppose, available and to provide the kind of resources that I can hopefully offer to help players improve when, whenever it's possible. At the moment, um, like I say, we, we have a head of steam and momentum that's been built over a number of years, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say there about the individuals. Um, how much do you reckon that there is that kind of elite mindset as a concept? Do you, do you think players are kind of blessed with that inherently or how much do you think you can build that up and, and improve that? It's both. It's absolutely, no, it's both, as in that, you know, nurture-nature debate is fairly well, I think, recognised that it's a combination of both. It's not one or the other. And, um, yeah, I think that's, that's you know, a good way to look at what's happening at Liverpool Football Club at the moment. Um, one has to say that there's a history of, of, of success and excellence in football at Liverpool you know, I'm I'm from Halifax in the northwest, and growing up as a kid, I wasn't a Liverpool fan, uh, but I was a Liverpool admirer in the 1970s and 80s, and the times in the 90s, Liverpool produced fantastic teams who kind of, you know, set the tone in terms of the way they played. I think that's what's happening to some a large degree now with Jurgen's team, shall we say, over the last few years. Um, and the mindset that is behind that is a combination of the players uh, who have been recruited and that being identified within them, the manager, obviously, and his coaching staff instilling that into the players, but also there's a cultural historical mindset at Liverpool that goes back to the 70s. When I was a kid, um, growing up, the Liverpool teams of Keegan and Toshak were outstanding such as the teams with Sunus and Daglish were a little bit later on. And then later on, that John Barnes and, you know, Peter Beasley and those kind of players. So there's a history of football at Liverpool, which makes it a unique football club and a privilege to be involved with it, to be honest. Um, so, you know, Liverpool knows all about mental performance and mental health and some of the, the, the successes and some of the, you know, significant challenges it's had to face as a football club over the last 60, 70 years. Yeah, it's really interesting yeah, to hear you talk about how that kind of historical success can make life easier for the current players in the sense that there's maybe less of a burden on them. They know that their, their predecessors have done it before, maybe not necessarily the case at all the competitors. Uh, and of course, three trophies still to play for, but one already in the bag. I couldn't have you on and not talk about the Carabao Cup final, like to talk to a psychologist about the, the penalty shootout there is a, a chance I didn't want to miss. Uh, of course, so... So high quality, all 11 penalties ended up being put away. Um, of course, we touched upon how it's a bit of both with nature and nurture, but how much of a penalty shootout would you say comes down to luck and how much of it is the the preparation in terms of the psychological side of things? 
I think there's definitely things that um, you can do to be able to look back and say you did everything that you could possibly have done to be in the right place to take the penalties. So whether that's practicing taking them, even though it's obviously difficult to make the context uh, as relevant as it would be in a, you know, the kind of environment that the, the players found themselves in at the end of that game. But nevertheless, just practicing your technique and what your strategy might be would certainly be useful. And I think that was done certainly by the players. Um, I think to a large degree, it's it's essentially about the desire to want to take penalties. So I, uh, in my career, I took, I think, sort of mid mid-teens penalties, I never missed one. And I was always, I always felt it was because I actually enjoyed taking a penalty. I actually relished the fact of being stood there. And I always thought, I always saw it as a battle between myself and the goalkeeper. I think that's what was the probably the key feature for me of the penalty shootout was obviously the well, there's a number of key a number of uh aspects that were sort of striking. As you say, one was the you know, fantastic execution from actually all the players, even the Chelsea players. Uh, obviously, apart from the goalkeeper, who who uh, seemed to seemed to look like he kind of, um, for want of a better phrase, fluffed his lines at the death. There, I think what was interesting to me was that, what as a psychologist, one of the things that is obviously a danger is to get into kind of a threatened state and to be too, essentially, too anxious, too uptight. Um, breathing gets affected. Uh, you can you can end up. Uh, just rushing your penalty and just wanting to get it over with, which is, we can see a lot. I think that was what happened with the Chelsea keeper. What was interesting to me was how I felt the Chelsea keeper's behaviour actually obviously was in, was substituted onto the pitch. His demeanour, I think, may have helped some of our players because he he adopted this sort of strategy of sort of walking towards them to try and kind of think, in, in his mind, put them off. I actually think he probably helped our players because he probably changed there any any threatened state to more of a more aggressive challenge kind of um, state and just probably helped just uh, you know focus them on um, their our players' minds and actually executing the task and rising to the challenge that the goalkeeper was setting. I think he would have been better just uh, probably retreating onto his line and just uh, concentrating on trying to save the save the penalty. So there's a number of little things that. I thought were interesting, but to be honest, yeah, the, the quality of penalty was excellent, and um, yeah, it'd been interesting to see what happened next if the if the Chelsea keeper had have scored, because I think they would have had to go start all over again. But yeah, it was it's excellent uh, execution and um, ability of all all the players. That, to be fair, to, to retain a, a calm state and to execute the penalties. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, of course, the repetition side of things, um, that would come under the kind of mastery culture you've talked about in, in your sort of uh, five points for, for athletes, um, you know, mental success, mental health, things like that. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the kind of embracing the battle almost of a penalty shootout. So would you say in those situations, you almost want to kind of embrace the the magnitude of the occasion rather than trying to minimize it yeah yeah focusing on what you're doing not on how you're doing is a really important thing to do i think sometimes when uh, whenever we're faced with a task and a challenge sometimes if we if we get too absorbed in how we think we're doing rather than just what we're doing uh, that can, can lead to us kind of overthinking let's say um so yeah, I think there's an element of which you have to 
really want to um, you know show what you can do in those situations. It's um, it, it's something that I think most players, without the pressure of the actual situation facing them, kind of enjoy doing. Um, you know, practicing taking penalties as a skill set is something I think most players quite enjoy trying to do in training. Obviously, then to replicate that onto the pitch um, uh, is a is a kind of um, is the next level and the next test. But I think most players, and certainly the ones who who execute penalties the best, are the ones who, who are quite happy to be placed under that kind of scrutiny and that pressure, and are able to just focus on the task and actually delivering the skills in that in that one specific moment. Hmm. Uh, and you touched on your own playing career a little bit earlier on, uh, so I just thought I'd circle back to that in terms of how much. Long time ago now, James. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know about that. I'm sure sure it's not too long ago. But uh, how much has the psychology side of the game developed since then? Uh, and do you think your playing past has made you better at what you do now in terms of uh, delivering the the psychology side of things to the players? I mean, you know, psychology is. Essentially, I always say to people, unless you don't have a mind or a brain, then, you know, psychology shouldn't be of any interest to you because essentially psychology is, um, you know, the kind of study of human behavior. um, And to that extent, it's always been prevalent and always will be prevalent in human experience because that's what psychology is about, human experience. What was go- what was probably prevalent in my era was a denial of that, or at least a a, um, a repression of that idea that it was anything um, there was anything kind of worthwhile to investigate, to explore, to understand within the kind of a realm of let's say academic study around psychology and psychological factors. Most uh, most coaches, managers. Um, of my era would see themselves as basically, you know, the purveyors of psychology and psychological wisdom. I think it's true to say that, all, you know, all managers, all leaders, all, all uh, bosses, shall we say, uh, will always have the most psychological impact potentially on, on, on people because they're the ones in charge, they're the ones who make the key decisions. The role of a psychologist is actually slightly different. I think it's something that's... Uh, uh, let's say slightly to the side, slightly independent, and uh, there are different ways to utilise the psychologist. But in the main, I think there's a degree of impartiality, which means that you uh, hopefully retain a professional distance and a, uh, an ethical stance that means that people are, are happy to, you know, confide and come and potentially have a chat or at least ask you to. Um, you know, look at things from your perspective to then pass on to them in terms of their own functioning. So it's a kind of a a role that's not was not around when I played. Absolutely, um, would it have been helpful to me then? Absolutely, and, and other players of my era definitely. Um, I think um, in terms of my functioning as a psychologist, I'm pretty sure it does help me that I've been a player, coach, and a manager as well in many regards. Think it doesn't mean to say that's you know that that's that that you, know, you can't be a psychologist if you haven't played professional sport or managed or coached, but I think it probably does give me some advantages. I would say. Okay, uh, and you've you've been lucky enough to work with Liverpool for a fair amount of time now. So you've been there in the period that sort of spans the uh, the pandemic and everything to do with that. 
Um, yep. That was one of the really interesting dynamics, I think, for for everyone to watch play out was the uh, the effect of the the lack of fans in grounds. Obviously, for supporters, just a very unpleasant time. But do you think that there was a tangible effect on the players of having to put in all of these performances behind closed doors? One hundred percent. It's probably the, the earliest um, psychological, um, in fact, sports science study was um, back in the 1800s by a guy called Norman Triplett, who was actually a social psychologist and was interested in uh, the effect that an audience would have on, on bicycle races. So it was the very first sports science experiment, if you like. And it was a psychology one. Uh, and call it social facilitation. I think it's a, it's a well-known phenomenon that, um, you know, the presence of an audience impacts on performance of players, uh, po both positively and negatively. And I think you could say the absence of, uh, of an audience in our case was definitely a, um, a, a factor that affected our performance, but also uh, aided the performance of the opposition. You only have to look at some of our games in recent times. I think I, the Leicester game this season, I think it was in the Cup, sticks in my mind, whereby we, were, we weren't playing particularly well and the crowd, um, the, the crowd at Anfield literally roared us on to a, to a win. So it's definitely a factor. Um, it's a well-known factor in psychology. And um, yeah, I think it was a good illustration of that last year when we had a bad run. Uh, it's a difficult, It's a difficult phenomenon to to change certainly in our um, situation last year, whereby we'd lost the crowd, if you like, or we the absence of our crowd meant that there was no real way of actually replicating that. Um, and obviously we were struggling at the time anyway to to play as well as we probably might. So um, yeah, but it's definitely a factor and it definitely affected us last year. I think everyone would probably acknowledge that. Hmm. And of course, the other big factor last year was the injuries uh, without going too much into specifics of individuals of course but um, in terms of the, the psychological side of things like you say it, it's always a factor regardless of um, of advancements you know it's always been there and injuries have always been one of the most psychologically testing times do you think that's where a role like the one you have at the club really comes into its own in terms of helping with with comebacks from setbacks such as that I'd like to think so I hope hopefully feel as though uh... That's something that where where you know I can contribute or psychology can contribute. I think that's uh, certainly one of the focuses for my work at, at Liverpool or anywhere else I've been, and would be the same for other psychologists working in other uh, sporting environments. It's obviously one of the most trying times for for any sports performer to kind of lose their their sense of identity, basically, because that's you know all, all sports people, professional sports people, want to want to perform and want to play their sport. And when that's taken away from them for any particular reason, it, it can be extremely challenging. Um, I've experienced it myself and obviously I've experienced working with lots of players over a number of years now since becoming a psychologist and and hopefully helping them with certain strategies to um, to kind of you know recover as quickly as possible. Well, we've certainly seen lots of impressive comebacks in the last few months, so clearly doing something right. Um, and just to sort of finish up, I won't ask you to make any quadruple predictions, don't worry, but uh, Jurgen Klopp's been very keen to sort of play down this talk of the quadruple one game at a time, things like that. Is 
is that something that that you would echo? Is it something that do you think the players will be thinking as well, or do you think that it's inevitable that that kind of that kind of goal will be on their minds? I think it's a cliche to to an extent, but there's a reason why cliches become cliches is because they're so true. And I'm I'm not going to say anything more than what the manager, the boss, has already said, probably to many people, because uh, he's 100% right, and they 100% agree with him. And I think the players are, are all experienced enough to know themselves. It's just, it's not worth considering. It's just uh, the next game is the most important game for Liverpool Football Club, and that'll be Everton on Sunday, and that's that will be the focus of the manager. It'll be the focus of the players, and they won't be going beyond any of that. And I can assure you of that. Well, it's a mindset that's done no harm so far, so I'll definitely bow to your expertise on that one, Lee. Uh, no thank you very much for that. Really enjoyed that. Very uh, very insightful. It's been a pleasure talking to you. No problem, James. That's good. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.